So when he was asked what he teaches, the Buddha responded that he teaches about the truth of suffering and the way that leads to the end of suffering. And this is very true. At the core of everything that he taught, uh, this is what he was pointing to, was the truth of suffering, and that there's a way to free ourselves from this suffering. It's interesting, I find, you know, when I think about the time of the Buddha and there was a lot of suffering at that time. You know, the way that the suttas are, are written, we get a historical context of what was happening during that time. And there was a lot of suffering going on. And there's a lot of suffering that's going on now at this point in time. And I don't know if this is true uh, at the time of the Buddha, but it seems very true now that uh, our uh, suffering is is in in many ways um, valued or supported in our uh, in, in the culture of the world, I think it's fair to say, right now at this point in time. And I think it might be that perhaps it's only the Buddha Dharma halls like this where we are f- fully discouraged, fully discouraged from continuing to create more and more suffering in our lives. Uh, It's not valued here. And this is, so that in itself is very valuable to have places like this and communities like this. It's very much at odds, I think, with much of our, our culture and our society. The Buddha was very inspired by the fact that there were people who could understand his teachings and perhaps free themselves from the cycle of creating uh, stress, suffering, dukkha in their life. He, at first, was not going to teach anything. He felt that what he understood would be too difficult to explain and that people wouldn't get it. And then uh, through some, uh, you could say, divine intervention, (laughs) he realized that that uh, wasn't actually true, that there were some that would get it and that he could teach this. And so that's what he did. And he set out for the rest of his life all the way up to his death, teaching what he came to understand. He devoted everything he had. He could have gone to a cave somewhere and just stayed there and meditated and and just been enlightened and no one would have known the difference. Uh, It would have probably been easier for him. 
But that's not what he did. He, he knew that there were those who would be interested. And here we are, thousands of years later, still interested, still listening, still practicing, still uh, inspired to free ourselves from the pattern of dukkha. This is, this is inspiring to me, the fact that here we are, we show up on Thursday night. We could be doing anything else, but this is what we decide to do. There's something very special about that. So this evening, what I want to talk about is uh, the reason we suffer and how, to, how we can release ourselves from that suffering. And so the word that is often used, uh, well, that's used in the, in the suttas is the word dukkha. And we talk about that word quite a bit here. Um, most Dharma talks at some point bring up this word dukkha because it is so central to, to the teachings. And so dukkha can be translated as suffering. Sometimes it's translated as stress. Um, I like the translation unsatisfactoriness. When we're unsatisfied with the way things are in any given moment. And so this dukkha uh, is really created because of our clinging to what we think should be happening in this moment or clinging to an idea or a belief of what, how things should be or how we should be or how others should be in any given moment, even though it's not how it is. It's us coming at odds with how things are. It's actually us falling out of the natural rhythm of how things are. I really like to talk about dukkha in terms of friction. And so many of you have heard that here from me. Uh, This idea, well, really, it's the way it feels to me Dukkha feels like friction. And so uh, this friction is us coming up against what's actually happening. As opposed to being with, uh, this is what's happening right now, being in the flow of, of how things are. So as I'm talking about this, you can see that uh, the cause is, is this clinging but it's us that are, you know, we're behind the cause. <laughs> it's really our not understanding, our ignorance uh, that is creating this. And so it's why we come and we practice to see things clearly, to understand more. And then we, we might be motivated on different levels as to how much clarity we're really looking for. Um, But that essentially is what we're all doing here. We're looking for more understanding and clarity and freedom from from this friction that we all experience in our life. So why, why do we do this? Where did this habit come from? Why, why would we choose to do this? 
I've been thinking about that a lot. I think one of the reasons we do this is because it gives us this false sense of security. This false sense of security that that we can control things in some way. You know. And it's we've been doing it for so long that it's comfortable. These habits that we have uh, trying to fix things, trying to make things just so, uh, being aversive to things. Um, it's kind of like a warm blanket for some of us. It's just the way that we know how to be. And so we repeat it because we just haven't quite figured out how to do otherwise. It's what we've been shown. It's what we've been taught, really. I think that it also gives us a false sense of place in the world. It gives us this very incomplete, uh, but a sense of ourself when we can cling to something. So in this example, perhaps it's clinging to who we think we are our, our identity. Uh, there's something very comforting about that. Perhaps some of us spend a lot of time trying to figure out just who we are, trying to create an identity, or maybe we've created it and we spend a lot of time holding on to that sense of who we are, making sure that all the people around us have that same sense of us. Unfortunately, uh, this uh, self-making that we do is often very limited to who we really are. Um, but this is what we do, and it's, it's comforting. It gives us this sense of place. We do it because we think it'll offer us happiness. Maybe we've even experienced a little bit of happiness in, from things that we've done that would be creating friction or would be clinging to something. Maybe it was just a moment of happiness or satisfaction. And so we continue on looking for uh, moments to hold on to and to create because we get this idea that if we can string enough of those moments along, then we will have true happiness, lasting happiness. But this isn't true. And so all we're doing is kind of groping out into the world, looking for the next thing that will make us okay. It's a lot of energy. It's always very disappointing at some point. It's not actually based in the nature of things. But we do it anyway because we think that that's true. We create this, we do this clinging and create suffering in our life to avoid suffering. It's kind of sweet <laughs> when you look at it like that. We will do anything to avoid discomfort, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. Do anything to avoid that. 
And yet, as we avoid and push away and ignore, uh, grope for something that's more pleasant in the moment, we are actually creating a lot more of this dukkha in those actions. But we do it because we want to be free or we want to be rid of suffering. You know, so we think we're doing it right. Maybe we've been doing it that way for some time. My guess is that most people are here because at some point you've figured out or maybe you've known for some time that it doesn't work. It's just not working. These old strategies that we have, the maps that we have, they don't work. It's not leading to what we were hoping it would lead to. And so we start looking for something different. Maybe we get this sense that there's got to be something more here. There's got to be something else. And that's, uh, that's what we are cultivating here, is the something else. But it's not easy. There's a phrase in Buddhism, uh, samsara, which um, is this cycle of rebirthing of ignorance and not understanding. And when we are in these cycles of dukkha, it's this cycle of samsara that we're just going over and over and over and repeating these experiences and unsatisfactoriness in our life. And it has quite a magnetic pull. Like I said, our culture... uh, really likes this wheel of samsara. We're all in it together and kind of supporting each other in some way uh, in this samsaric cycle. And so it's really difficult. You know, the, the, the phrase against the stream, which comes out of the, the suttas, but now has been popularized uh, through the against the stream movement. Um, this is radical, it is, it is against the stream so it's not easy but it's very much available for everybody so with practice we can begin to see um, the choices that we make the things that we value in life uh, that might be driving us, the things that we value in ourself, or, uh, you know, also the flip side of that, what are we not valuing in life? What are we not valuing within ourself? What's really driving us? We get to see that more and more clearly as we come and we sit and we get quiet, and we're asked to pay attention to something as simple as the body sitting here and the breath. But of course, it's not about the body sitting here and the breath. It's about our relationship with that, being in the moment, our relationship with what happens when the body isn't so calm and tranquil and peaceful and feeling good. What's our relationship with the mind when it's going all over the place and spinning out or getting really sleepy and sluggish? Do we fight those moments? Do we struggle 
trying to make it something else, making something that we think it should be? Can we be with, actually turn towards it with our awareness, with our mindfulness, and fully embrace it? This is what's happening right now. I think on a very primal level, there's something in us that doesn't want to turn towards the difficult. Maybe this is something that um, was born through our evolution as humans. Maybe it's even uh, something that we see in mammals and just all sentient beings, this primal instinct not to go towards discomfort, not to turn towards what's hard and really be there with it openly. And yet that's what this practice is asking us to do. This is not easy. It's counterintuitive. But of course we spend a lot of time and energy trying to maintain not being with the difficult. A lot of time and energy. So the more and more we can actually be with whatever is arising in the moment, we can begin to let go of that grip. Uh, you know, they talked, I like that word clinging. It has that sticky, kind of tight um, feeling that a grip would have. In fact, if you take your fist right now and make a fist as tight as you can and just feel all of the energy it takes to do that, this is what we do in order to avoid discomfort. It's really uncomfortable. (laughs) And then let go. We hear all the time teachers in, in these traditions say, just let go. What does that mean? This is what they're talking about. Letting go of the clinging. Letting go of this unsatisfactoriness with what's happening right now. But this goes against many fibers in our being. And so we have to train our mind and our heart in order to do that. I remember um, this was quite some time ago. It was probably one of my first retreats that I was ever on. It was a silent meditation retreat. How many of you have been on a silent meditation retreat? Okay, great. So this will be very familiar. <laughs> I just remember um, it, the retreat was. It was at a retreat center. It was really beautiful. Um, I was just kind of going along with the practice and the schedule and doing okay. And I was really taken by, though, the, the beauty of the place that I was in. And from that place, this thought arose. Someone should really take a photograph of this. <laughs> Someone should really document the beauty of this place. And that thought... Uh, was not caught. (laughs) I didn't really see it for what it was. In fact, it seemed like a really, yeah, that's a really good idea. Someone should take photographs of the beauty of this place. 
And then before too long, what I found was that uh, I was actually looking for things that I should take photographs of. And so as I would be doing my walking meditation back and forth, I would kind of look up and take a peek and, oh yeah, right there. I would stand right here and the light's coming in just right. What time is it? Okay, this is when I would take a picture of this. Okay, back to the breath. And then I would do my walking meditation. Sitting in the hall, I'd open my eyes and kind of look around. And yeah, if I was sitting over there, that would be a much better angle of this room and would really do it justice if I had a camera. I should mention I did not have a camera (laughs) at all (laughs) in my life. (laughs) I'm not a photographer. (laughs) But my mind... um, what it was doing was that groping out into, into uh, the world, looking for something that was more pleasant than what I was actually doing in the moment. Looking for anything that would be more entertaining than just sitting here, paying attention to my breath. And it became quite the obsession over this seven-day retreat. To a point where, near the end of the retreat, I remember very clearly Uh, Not only was I taking fabulous photographs in my mind, (laughs) but I had this whole idea of what I should do with these photographs that really, I could really do something with this. And, um, you know, I bet I could sell some of these photographs. And, you know, there's that there's that um, gallery down the street, and I bet that they would really be interested. I could see myself doing an opening in that gallery and really being something. And then, you know, the magazines, I could sell these photos to magazines. I'm going to be so good at this, and I should just quit my job. (laughs) It really went in that direction. (laughs) Totally spun out. It seemed really important, too. It just seems so important, way more important than sitting here paying attention to my breath. And it wasn't until I came out of the retreat, and it must have been around my birthday or a holiday or something, uh, because funny enough, I was gifted a little point-and-shoot just after the retreat. And I got to tell you, I barely took that thing out of the box. (laughs) I really wasn't interested at all in being a photographer. This was the makings of my mind. It started with a really simple thought. But what I did with that thought was I clung on to it. It was my place of comfort during that retreat. It was so much better than actually looking at Uh, the dukkha and the mind states and the emotions and the humanness that was so there and available to see and be with and learn from, to release even from. But I instead uh, got caught by the stickiness of that idea, of of that dream that just seemed so important at the time. Uh, ended up be actually being quite a waste of time. And we do this. We do this all the time. <laughs> and yet when we do it, in the middle of it, it seems really reasonable. 
but actually it's being fueled by delusion. You can just see in that story all the delusion that was present during that retreat. And so it's tricky. It's hard sometimes to even notice that we're, that we're stuck in our clinging. But it's what we're doing here. It's why we really need to practice. It's why we need to keep coming back to the present moment to see what is actually happening here. And what am I doing with that? What's my relationship with it? This is from Ajahn Armaro, who's British but is an ordained uh, Thai forest monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition and is the abbot. Um, I can't remember if he's the abbot of Amaravati or Chithurst. Anybody know? One of the two, but he's in the UK. The way to know if what we are doing is worthwhile is to ask, does this lead to the end of suffering or does it not? If it does, continue. If it does not, we need to switch our attention to what will. We can simply ask ourselves, am I experiencing dukkha? Is there a feeling of alienation or difficulty? If there is, it means that we are clinging or hanging on to something. We need to see that the heart is attached somewhere and then make the gesture to loosen up, to let go. Sometimes we don't notice where the suffering gets generated. We get so used to doing things in a particular way that we take it as the standard. But in meditation, we challenge the status quo. We investigate where there is a feeling of dis-ease and look to see what's causing it. By stepping back and scanning the inner domain, it's possible to find out where the attachment is and what's causing it. Ajahn Chah would say, if you have an itch on your leg, don't scratch your ear. In other words, go to where the dukkha is, no matter how subtle it may be, notice it and let it go. That's how we allow the dukkha to disperse. This is how we will know whether the practice we are doing is effective or not. So, in order to let go of dukkha, we have to know what it is. And there's different forms of dukkha. Well, there's different flavors of dukkha. And this is not from the sutta, what I'm about to say, but I've nicknamed some of the flavors of dukkha. (laughs) And the first one is dukkha yuck. And dukkha yuck... Uh, can actually be really helpful. It's what often brings us here. We're just ugh, so sick of it, and we see it for what it is, and it's grimy, and it's uncomfortable, and we, want any, we just want to be free of it. We want to be rid of it. And so it can really inspire us, actually, to practice. Um, it can start to help us discern between what is wholesome And what is unwholesome? What is causing the clinging? And what is letting me let go? But we start to get this idea that, you know, because the goal is to be free from dukkha, that we should be 
uh, rejecting and pushing away dukkha, averse to dukkha, uh, just to somehow um, ignore it. We do this sometimes in our spiritual practice because we have this idea that it should look a certain way and I should feel a certain way and anything that doesn't feel that way isn't my spiritual practice. It's dukkha yak. And this just isn't true. This also is being fed out of delusion. We have to turn towards the yak. We have to really get to know it. And it's not easy, like I keep saying. We often end up judging ourselves for having it. We think of it sometimes as this sign of our imperfection. We don't like that. We don't like to be imperfect. But we are human. (laughs) Yeah, we're imperfect. And part of what we're doing is really getting to know our humanness and to know that this is not personal and that we don't have to hold on to it. I'll read you another kind of a fun excerpt from Ajahn Amaro. It's easy to get very busy with spiritual life, even driven and obsessive. During the first 10 years of my monastic life, I became a somewhat fanatic monk. This might sound like an oxymoron, but it is by no means impossible. I was trying to do everything 120%. I would get up super early in the morning and do all sorts of ascetic practices, all kinds of special pujas and such like. I wasn't even laying down. I didn't lay down to sleep for about three years. Finally, I realized I had far too many things going. There was no sense of any internal spaciousness throughout the day. I was desperately busy with the meditation. During that time, my life was jammed full. It was always half, half fretful and fussy. or I was ha- always half fretful and fussy. I couldn't even eat or walk across the courtyard without it being a thing. Finally, I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? This life is supposed to be lived for peace, for realization, for freedom, and my days are all clogged up. I should have gotten the message long before. I used to sit flat on the floor, the use of a zafu which are these cushions, being a sign of weakness in my eyes. Well, one of the nuns was getting so fed up with watching me fall asleep during every sitting that she came up to me and asked, Could I offer you a cushion, Ajahn? Thank you very much. I don't need it, she replied. I think you do. Especially, eventually I went to Ajahn Sumedho and said, I've decided to give up all my ascetic practices. I'm just going to follow the ordinary routine and do everything absolutely normally. It was the first time I ever saw him get excited. At last, (laughs) was his response. I thought he was going to say, oh, well, if you must. He was waiting for me to realize that it wasn't the amount of stuff I did, the hours that I put in on the cushion, the number of mantras that I recited, or how strictly I kept with all the rules. It was more about embodying the spirit of non-becoming, 
non-striving in everything I did, it then dawned on me that the importance of non-striving was something Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho had been teaching for many years. I just hadn't been able to hear it. And so sometimes we notice this in ourselves. We get this idea of what this is supposed to be. And it's so born out of our, our striving, our greediness, our wanting it to be a certain way, our complete delusion about what that means. We can get really caught up in being or trying to be uh, awake. Ajahn uh, Sumedho, so Ajahn Sumedho is also one of Ajahn Amaro's teachers and uh, uh, was a student of Ajahn Chah as well. He says, not to try so hard to do enlightenment or become enlightened. Instead, just be, just being enlightened. Just to be. The simplicity of just being with whatever is here in this moment, with clarity, with wisdom, with compassion, with this openness of heart and mind that knows the truth of how things are. It's much more simple than our minds would make it out to be. It's much more uh, simple than all this doing that we do. I do think that we have to go through the doing process, at least for a little while, and actually go through and know the suffering of all that doing so that we are inclined to actually let go of it, so that we're not valuing it anymore. So it's part of the process, but just to know that it's also not necessary at some point. I think this is where the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, really meets our mindfulness practice. In order to stay with the difficulty, to stay with the parts of ourselves that are in the shadows or the parts of ourselves that we wish weren't there, to stay with the difficulty of other people or our surroundings, our situations, in order to really stay in contact with it, to really get to know it with our mindfulness, we need the attitude of metta, of loving kindness, this ability to stay open to uh, whatever is here. Metta sometimes is translated as a friendliness And so staying in in a friendly relationship with the dukkha, that's what we're being asked to do. Staying in a friendly relationship with the dukkha. So another flavor of dukkha I call, ooh, dukkha, yes please. And this is the dukkha that's very much like the dukkha I was experiencing on the retreat where I thought I would become the next great photographer. It's often the dukkha that seems really reasonable. You know, it's the stuff that we cling to that just seems really right. It's still the same movement. (laughs) It's still clinging. But it just seems rational 
to us because we just haven't seen, seen it actually clearly. So, Uduka, yes please, is often very sneaky. Um, it is the kind of dukkha that gives us the sense of comfort, the sense of um, uh, maybe even being uh, quite spiritual, um, boosts our, our sense of ourself, um, but in this very clingy way. Oftentimes it has the flavor of, um, if only this moment was, if only this moment was free from the person breathing really hard next to me, if only this moment had the sound of birds in the background, if only this moment uh, my body would just be relaxed, if only I had just a few more cushions, uh, everything would be just right. I would, I have a real chance at awakening, if only <laughs> certain conditions were present right now. I have a friend who, on a retreat, uh, he told me about this and said I could share this. Um, it was, I believe it was his first retreat, and he was a pretty new meditator, and uh, he was experiencing a lot of body discomfort, which is really common, especially when we first start meditating. And for some of us, it's something that we end up being having to have a relationship with our entire meditation career. It's just how it is, these bodies. But for him, it was, uh, it was, it was non-negotiable. In order to sit and to practice wisely and well, the body needed to be really, really comfortable. And to do that, he just needed the right number of cushions. And so the way he tells it, he was sitting somewhere in, in the middle here. Um, and uh, over a number of days, kept bringing different cushions and blankets and contraptions <laughs> from the back room to create what ended up being quite a throne right in the middle of the meditation room. Uh, and he never got comfortable. With everything that he added, it was just almost, almost right, but not quite right. It was kind of like that uh, princess in the pea type thing. It just, I just, I can still feel it. It's just not quite there and he had this restlessness in the body and the mind was going all over the place and it must be because I just don't have the right configuration of cushions and he spent a lot of time trying to find the right configuration of cushions so that everything would be just perfect and just so in his meditation and of course it never happened because it had nothing to do with the amount of cushions that he had in fact that ended up being such a distraction but this is what we do. We think, oh, I'm going to really help myself. I'm going to really help my meditation and pad as much as I can, pad myself from the suffering and the discomfort. And then I'll really get somewhere. What we end up doing is just creating more and more dukkha, don't we, when we do things like this. 
but it seems so reasonable. It just seems so rational. Sometimes this type of dukkha um, looks like striving in the sense of, uh, you know, we get this idea that we can almost outsmart the moment. We get really intellectual about what's happening right now. Like we can think our way out of whatever the situation is. So we're sitting here and maybe we have, maybe we even have kind of an insight into what's going on in our life in this moment. And it arises and it's really quite profound and beautiful. And we don't just allow it to be there. We grab onto it and we identify it. Ooh, that was really good. <laughs> Let me expound on that. <laughs> Let me pull this apart and tease it apart and see what's at the what's at the base of this and where is this going and what does this mean about me and who am I going to tell about this when I'm out of this meditation? And we start to uh, very quickly create our sense of self again around even what began to be uh, quite profound wisdom. I think sometimes, again, this is just where we are most comfortable. We think that we are Uh, helping ourselves. We think that we are bettering ourselves in some way, but really just uh, creating more and more the sense of self. So there's a lot of selfing that's happening in this creation of dukkha. We also know those moments when we're free of it. I'm willing to guess that we've all had those moments where we were just present, when we were just here and with whatever was arising. How many of you noticed the sunset before you came in today? Wasn't that striking? It was just beautiful. And so my guess is that maybe this evening or maybe sometime in the past, for example, you were just with the sunset. You didn't have to do anything with it. You didn't have to hang on to it because you know better. The sunset will come and it will go. But just to be there with the beauty that was, was there, not having to create a sense of self out of it, just simply being present with it. There was none of this happening. It was just this. So we get these flavors, this taste of freedom from the clinging mind, and it feels so good. It's replenishing, it's relaxing. There's something timeless about it. We just forget to to actually acknowledge it. You know, those moments, they come and they go. And, you know, part of this practice is not just noticing where the clinging is, but also notice when it's not there. Those moments where this feels really free. There isn't the friction happening right now. I'm just here. 
I'm just knowing what's arising and falling. There's no need to identify with it. No need to hold on to it. I'm just with it. This is, this is part of the practice too. The knowing of the lack of dukkha. The knowing of these moments of freedom. And of course, knowing also when the, ooh, I'm doing it, <laughs> comes in. Oh, this is great. <laughs> if I could just hang on to this moment of not doing. <laughs> just noticing that tendency too. How we flow in and out of the freedom and the dukkha. All of it is part of the experience of us being human and us on this journey of awakening. We come in and out of the suffering. So I'll just end with uh, a quote from the Buddha. It says that just as the great oceans, as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so also this teaching and discipline has one taste, and it's the taste of liberation. So what I'd like to do is just open it up for a few questions or comments. I'd love to hear um, just your thoughts on this, on this theme of clinging and non-clinging, dukkha, non-dukkha. And then, of course, if there's any questions you have or need for clarification, this would be a good time for it. We'll pass the mic. So um, this evening when I was sitting, I was experiencing the sound of somebody else, which I recognize as aversion. And then I spent a little time like, okay, it's kind of making me mad. What's that all about? It's an unpleasant feeling. And I realized that part of what was going on was that it was triggering my my fear of being vulnerable Mm -hmm. myself. So that, that was a lot of processing going on um and my question often during practice is what place should that kind of processing have Mm -hmm. when i'm sitting i I feel like i'm it's it's a good thing to be doing to go ahead and kind of at least get down to the core of what is the unpleasant feeling but there is a lot of processing going on so what place does it have yeah it does have a place in it all. It's just, it's just a matter of noticing, is there clinging in the process or is, there, is it leading to non-clinging? Just like Ajahn Amaro was saying. And so as we notice, for example, there's, there's the friction. There's some noise. This should not be happening or I don't want this to be happening right now. There's the friction with what's actually happening, which there's a noise. And then noticing okay, there's dukkha here, and I'm 
really averse to the experience, and that's that's you know fueling the dukkha. And then once we notice, oh, there's aversion here. If we can, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is that you noticed there was aversion there, and then what happened? Was it? I clung to it. <laughs> you clung to it. <laughs> and well, so, I, I I don't want to just like. Um, deny what I'm feeling. No, know? the idea is not to deny, but to turn towards it, to fully turn towards it with our attention. This is aversion. This is what aversion feels like. It's not about the sound. It's about our relationship with it. It's about our idea of what that sh- sound should be doing or not doing, that it should or should not be here. And so we get aversive. We don't want it here. And so the idea is then we turn towards the aversion. This is aversion. This is what it feels like in my body. This is what it does to my mind. To really get to know it. But we're getting to know it from a place of not, uh, not needing to identify with it. It's not personal. It's not permanent. It's something that is arising in this moment and it has our attention. It needs our attention. And so we bring our attention to it. And so in that way, we're getting to know it. We're not spending so much time uh, going to uh, the, maybe the psychological route of, well, when I was a kid, this probably developed because my mother you know, did this and and now I have this habit, and, you know, if only that didn't happen, then I would be fine, you know, so it doesn't, we're not going there with the practice. It's really the immediacy of the moment, the aversion is in this moment, and meeting it right there. The root, if you really want to go to the root, the root is our non-understanding of, of that moment, are not understanding that the sound is not personal, that even the aversion itself is an arising from our own causes of, and conditions and, um, and not something we have to hold on to. But we have to keep looking at it to see it in that way. Well, so far I'm just saying, it's okay, you're having aversion. Yeah. It's okay. That's great. <laughs> That's the metta meeting that moment, right? The friendliness with this is aversion. Yeah, it is okay. The restlessness, the doubt, all of it. This is what's happening right now. Can I be with it? Can I really be with it? Mm-hmm. Um, just one thing, I... I also heard a sound, um, and it got to me for a short time, and then I put a smile on my face every (laughs) time, and it just melted into me, and it was wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Hi. I just had a question. Um, You mentioned that the clinging to the suffering can control, oh, no. Uh, gives us a false sense of self. Mm-hmm. And I guess I didn't completely understand that. And I was wondering if you could explain a little more about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So in this practice, in this tradition, we talk a lot about non-self. Um, that this uh, truth of how we construct this sense of ourself that is really um, based in lots of fragmented moments that we experience and then we bring them all together and you know, bring in our, our past, bring in our sense of what might happen in the future that has to do with ourself. Uh, and we create you know, this idea of Kate. <laughs> That's me. And um, very much like we might look at a, a Prius, a car, and, uh, and see Prius. But if we were to deconstruct that Prius and took apart the structure of that Prius and laid it out on the road right out in front of the monastery in all of its bits and pieces we wouldn't look at that and say Prius anymore. We would see, oh, here's a door, and here's a door handle. Here's the muffler. Do they have mufflers in Priuses? <laughs> muffler. Um, the steering wheel is over here. You know, we would see it for, for actually more of what it is. Now, for functionality... I need to be able to walk around and know that I'm Kate, that I'm here, that this is who I am. That's, that's true too. But if I hold this idea really tightly uh, of who I am, that not only am I Kate, but I'm Kate and I have this particular personality, I have these particular likes and dislikes, these are the people I hang out with and these are the people I don't hang out with. These are the things I believe in and are really say something about me. And these are the things that um, I don't want anybody to know about me. You know, there's, there's this um, self-making that we're constantly engaged in that's actually not necessary. Uh, it's not helpful. <laughs> it's not true. Because in any given moment, we're actually quite different from we were, who we were the moment before. If I hold on to who I was a year ago, um, it's really not accurate to who I am right in this moment. It may have cause, have, it'll have causes and conditions that have influenced me in this moment. But Kate a year ago doesn't exist. Kate right now exists. Does that make more sense? Clinging to the suffering is just a part of that. Yeah, so yeah. part of the suffering is clinging to this sense of ourself or the making of self that is not actually based in, in reality. It's Mostly it's based in our mind, mm-hmm. right? It's really based in our mind. Have you ever, there's an interesting exercise. If you've ever asked a friend to really honestly tell you who they thought you were or what they thought you were like, and then you hear the friend reflect things that uh, you think, oh, I wouldn't have thought people thought that of me. <laughs> you know, we have this really strong idea of who we are that is just not really inaccurate, often very limiting, uh, denying 
uh, parts of ourselves, um, valuing parts of ourselves that aren't actually as valuable maybe that, as we think they are, um, solidifying ourselves as if we were just this constant. But we're not. We're in constant flux. We're in constant change. When we hold on to the constant and solid sense of self, that's when we end up having so much dukkha about ourself. We end up having a lot of disappointment or judgment about ourself, uh, fear about ourself, or fear about people finding out something about ourself, uh, fear that, you know, what will be in the future won't be enough. It's a lot of dukkha. Okay, so I think that's all we have time for. Uh, I'll just dedicate the merit of this evening. And you're welcome to actually participate in this. Um, When we come and we practice in this way, it is valuable. It's important. And um, it has a ripple effect in our life when we train the heart and mind in this way. And when we dedicate the merit, what we're doing is dedicating the wholesomeness of our time and our intention and our effort here to not just benefit ourselves, but to benefit uh, other beings, ultimately all beings everywhere. But perhaps there's a particular person in your life right now that has been on your mind whom you're wishing uh, that perhaps the benefits of, of this practice would touch them in some way. And so you might just take a moment to bring them to mind and wish them well, wishing them clarity and ease, wishing them freedom from suffering. And then we can take that same intention to wish for the freedom of suffering of that particular being and wish for the ripple effects of this practice to go out to all beings everywhere. May all beings be uh, content in their life. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings have safety from inner and outer harm. May all beings find ease on their journey. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.